Hi, welcome to Radius of Reason. I am Andre, and I am joined by my ultra right wing nationalist co host, Levan. <laughs> All right, so should we? <laughs> Full disclaimer neither one of us support right wing ideologies. Should we allow Mexicans? <laughs> yes, we should allow everybody. I think the greatest thing that happened to this country is where we started introducing a second language. What do we do with the illegals? Give them passports. So they can go everywhere else? Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Hey, how long have you been in the United States for? Oh, man. 23 years. Yeah, I've been here about 25, I think. Do you still feel like an immigrant? No. No? Fully assimilated? Yes. Yeah, I'm, I, I see you've embraced some of the, the ideology of our country. Yes. <laughs> um, topic today, we're, t- uh, we're going to be getting at it is immigration um this i think is a topic that becomes very very hot and, and focused on around election times here in the united states certainly we see a lot of footage and, and reporting coming from the border regions of our country um, and, and it seems like anytime there is any sort of political upheaval or focus on politics at the national level, immigration is going to be one of the top issues that we grapple with as a country. We have people in this country who feel that immigration is objectively a terrible thing and that immigrants are the bane of financial stability, security, things along those lines. And others feel that immigration is a welcome addition to our country, adding diversification to our culture, bringing new perspectives, new talents to the workforce, uh, but also bringing a level of new perspectives to our country. Now, what we're going to try to understand in our conversation is, first of all, is immigration necessary? Is it inevitable? What are the consequences of immigration? And what is the future of immigration going to look like? Yeah. And, you know, this is a conversation. At the end of the day, we're not, uh, you know, trying to promote certain views. Uh, I think both of us, at the end of the day, being immigrants, uh, see that immigration can certainly be a good thing. We're not, we're not anti-immigration by any stretch of the imagination, but we do want to consider kind of all the different ideas regarding immigration and try to steel man even some of the, um, let's just say, more right-wing kind of um, arguments against immigration. Um, I, think, I think all these ideas are worth discussing, um, even if some of the ideas are ugly to think about, and even if uh, we rather not uh, promote them or, or, or think about them too much, it's still, still worth discussing, I think. Um, so in reading about this issue, um, I kind of found something sort of expected, but still pretty interesting. Um, so let me elaborate a little bit. So, 
Europe right now is kind of facing a sort of migration crisis, I think you could say. Is, is that, I mean, would you agree with me? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's been a situation the continent has faced for, for the past five, six, seven years or so. Yeah, definitely. So a lot of this has gotten particular media attention in parallel to the war in Syria, which opened up a lot of floodgates for migrants escaping that conflict. But also you have almost routine reporting on migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean from northern Africa. Um, a lot of this could be attributed to uh, ongoing conflicts in some of these countries and really the consequences, what I think of as the, the post-colonial legacy. So in my opinion, these waves of immigrants that continue to pour into Western Europe can be directly traced back to how Western European countries themselves behaved uh, towards the countries which are unstable right now. I mean, this is almost an exact parallel to the situation faced in the United States that we briefly discussed in our introduction, where waves and waves of immigrants pouring from Mexico, Central America, Venezuela, are very much fleeing countries that were destabilized by almost 100 years, if not more, worth of dysfunctional and damaging policy that the United States practiced in the, in the Western Hemisphere. Now, I think these are interlinked conversations to have. They are dependent on one another. But at the same time, there is a separate discussion to be had around the realities of, okay, yes, we're facing down the consequences of actions undertaken by our home countries over the past 100 years, but how do we deal with the realities of mass amounts of migration pouring into Western Europe and in the United States? How is this impacting the social fabric of Europe? I mean, what's going on in places that are opening their doors to mass amounts well, of immigrants well, like a, Sweden? Well, that's a good question, right? Like Sweden, like you said, great example. Um, so again, like doing a little bit of research on this, um, I found the Swedish National Council for Crime Prevention. They said, over the last 20 years, Sweden has gone from having one of the lowest to one of the highest levels of gun violence in Europe, worse than Italy or Eastern Europe. The increase in gun homicide in Sweden is closely linked to criminal, to the criminal milieu in socially disadvantaged areas, the report said. Gangs whose members are second-generation immigrants, mainly from Somalia, Eritrea, Morocco, and elsewhere in North Africa, specialize in drug trafficking and the use of explosives. Crime has become the number one issue in Sweden. And... I mean, that is that is a great example of immigration policy gone wrong because the entire national opinion has now um, gone against immigration. The, the, the people are looking down on immigrants, right, in Sweden. I mean, this is the result of, of poor immigration policy. You know, this article also goes on to say that all the major parties today in Sweden stand for restrictive immigration policy with a strong focus on law and order. So if you compare that to what's going on in the U.S., that sounds extremely, that sounds like a right-wing position, right? But, but in Sweden, that is the predominant view among all the parties. Um, in the U.S., 
we kind of have a similar problem to some extent in terms of how people view immigrants, uh, at least, uh, you know, people on the right. It's not just people on the right, though. I think I think there's there's people there, there's definitely liberals that also they, they look down on immigrants. They have a perception of immigrants that is maybe they're not saying it out loud, but still in line kind of with the notion that immigrants, uh, you know, they take jobs, they lower they, they lower wages, they commit more crimes, etc. But when you actually look at some of the data uh now this this information's from the Cato Institute. I don't know how how reputable uh they are. I think we can discuss the sources all day long. Uh, uh, well depending which political viewpoint you fall under, right, I suppose. Right. Uh but so here's what here's kind of their report, which which is just a kind of a, a summary of, of different studies. Um but immigrants uh are a major source of crime. Like that's one of the the myths that they say because actually Ill- illegal immigration incarceration rates were about half those of native-born Americans in 2017. And then, you know, there's like the myth of immigrants will take American jobs, lower wages, and if you look at the studies, immigration tends to increase wages for most Americans. So what I kind of learned from this is Regardless of the impact that immigrants are having, I think they are always kind of going to be a scapegoat. Yeah. And this is due to the tribal nature of humans, right? The in-group, out-group mentality. You successfully mentioned that, I think, on every single podcast or yes. episode we've recorded. Your daily dose of uh, Tribalism. evolutionary <laughs> psychology. Uh, so, I mean, th- this to me cements the idea that you have to get immigration policy right because it's always you're kind of always in this fragile position of of the tide turning against you know the the out group right yeah and i i think you brought up something very very valuable to our conversation in that immigrants are going to be political scapegoats and i think largely because immigrants tend to be vulnerable populations even if you're coming as a highly educated computer scientist from somalia uh, you're still going to be in a, in a foreign country trying to adapt to sociocultural elements that might not be familiar to you. You're going to be inherently at a disadvantage from the rest of the population. And you're going to be less likely to fight back against untruths that are spoken about your community. And that's why immigrants are an easy scapegoat. Um, the, the question is, what can be, uh, is it an issue of policy if our country will have stereotypes about immigrant communities, right? I mean, you called out something the Cato Institute wrote, which from what I understand is a fairly conservative organization. Mm -hmm. A conservative institution is kind of breaking the standard talking points, right? But does anybody really care? Because it's not about the truths of how immigrant communities behave in this country. It's about how that notion makes people feel, right? And I, I mean, from a standpoint, if you just look at it objectively, nobody... I'd say the majority of immigrants coming to the United States or to European countries, they're not going to these countries to perform criminal acts or going there with the intention of like fucking things up. I'd say the majority of immigrants like our families came to the United States, for instance, really stereotypically almost pursuing a better life, right? Wanting more stability for their families so they can raise their kids in peace, wanting a place where they can, you know, have, uh, 
a home, although I guess that's more and more uh, difficult to achieve. Uh, but very seldom I imagine are people actively trying to enter or cross over to the United States, especially if you're going through the process of illegally immigrating to this country. I mean, if you read some of the experiences of individuals trying to illegally cross over the United States border, you know, crossing over really, really tough desert terrain, you know, for instance, on the Mexico-Arizona border, right? These kind of immigrant trails that are exceptionally dangerous and um Nobody is going through all this hardship just to get to a country to start like vandalizing, spraying graffiti everywhere. Nine times out of 10, they just want a better paying job so they can secure themselves a better future. So, but that's very hard, I think, for um, disenfranchised people that are native to a certain country to sort of come to terms with because they are themselves in a level of pain and discomfort and they themselves are experiencing what they feel level of injustice probably. So of course you're going to turn on the most vulnerable population. So to your point, what I want to ask is immigration policy inherently linked with domestic policy. Would you have more successful immigration policy if you had your ducks in a row domestically speaking? Well, I mean, there's no question, you know, solid domestic policy would enhance the, you know, level of assimilation you know, from immigrants, et cetera. But I, I do think there's still kind of a distinction uh, between the policies because you, you, you can have good domestic policy, like perhaps Sweden is, is a good example of this, right? They, they, they're doing exceptionally well uh, in, in many areas, but with the influx of immigrants, due to the policies that they had, mm -hmm. due to taking in maybe more than they can chew, now there's a massive backlash, a this, lack of assimilation. So yes, precisely. That, that's what I wanted to ask you it is, are the problems that we are discussing, is, is this an issue with immigration or is this an issue with assimilation? I think the two are intrinsically tied. Okay. Right. Um, anytime you have immigrants, coming into a country, you're going to have the question of, will they assimilate? And whether they do or not, it has massive repercussions for the stability uh, and the culture of, of that country. Right. Um, I think the goal of, f from the standpoint of, of a host nation, the goal is to assimilate the immigrants. Right. Yes. I mean, I don't think there's a single country that doesn't want to assimilate, uh, have their immigrants assimilate. So in that sense, I don't I don't really view them as that distinct in practice. Right. Like in theory, that there's a distinction between immigration and assimilation. In practice, the questions kind of merge into a single issue in my mind. Is assimilation a problematic concept? Is it a negative thing for a host country to expect assimilation from the immigrants that it welcomes. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're kind of now diving into the ethics of, of immigration, right? Um, for the host country to expect assimilation, assimilation from, uh, immolation. Wait, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> assimilation from, from the immigrants. I, I mean, honestly, I think that's a very reasonable kind of expectation and desire. Um, if you're coming into another country, you know, what right do you have to tell them, you know, like, hey, like, I don't care about your culture. I'm just going to do my own thing. 
they're they're opening their doors for you it's like you you go to somebody's house and then you kind of disrespect them right that's that's the way i view that mm-hmm. um so I, I i think host countries are well within their right to expect and desire for for immigrants to assimilate to to their culture mm-hmm. um and that brings up a really interesting question you know with regard to say sweden where you have an influx of immigrants that are from a distinctly different culture right um are they learning their lesson now that it's not as straightforward right like we have examples of good immigration we see the u.s is like you know this example of the melting pot but the majority of u.s immigrants have actually come from countries that have a relatively similar kind of um set of religious values for example right so which ties into their culture so very culturally and religiously similar people often think like you know islam and christianity are the same they're not and this is this is just massive ignorance uh, on most people's parts here mm-hmm. uh they they think of religion as like this one thing well it's all about the same no it's not actually there's 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 key differences and you're seeing a lot of the tension as a result in europe um now, I, I don't want to get too deep into the, like, kind of the religious texts and, and the differences between the two. Maybe that's a topic for another day. Mm-hmm. But uh, I want to circle back to the larger issue of, of the ethics behind immigration. So you mentioned, like, Western nations destabilizing uh, a lot of, you know, kind of these, uh, th- these other countries, you know, maybe an African country, whatever, a Middle Eastern country. Right. Does that then impose an ethical obligation to take in like the refugees that result from these kind of interactions? Yes, I I think it. So a a great case study would be Libya, right? Where when I need to hang on, look up the start. The participation of Western Europe and the United States, let's call them NATO, in the Libyan civil war and the ultimate toppling of Gaddafi and the complete destabilization of Libyan society. Now, I don't know enough about the politics, uh, internal politics to Libya that led up to the civil war, but I do know, and I've interacted with students from Libya, for instance, when I was in college, that were coming from generally a stable place. And I think the decision to interject yourself into that war to run bombing campaigns that ultimately resulted in this kind of fragmentation and collapse of Libyan society. I think, yes, there is a, there must be a recognized acceptance that by destabilizing a country, you're going to be responsible for the masses of populations. that are going to start fleeing said country. I, I think a better example is probably what I mentioned before, the behavior of the United States towards Central America um in the previous century um guatemala is a great example where we intervene multiple times from like the 1950s onwards into guatemala's political process kind of destabilized any chance they had at local political autonomy anytime any center-left government came into the fold so of course guatemala isn't going to have a cultural of political stability which can bring about social stability so of course people are going to be fleeing guatemala and to turn them around and tell them to go back and stay in their countries like that, 
I think that's cruel because they wanted to stay in their countries. They wanted to build out their societies how they saw fit. Somebody got involved and that led directly to the instability they're experiencing now. So yes, I would say the imperative and the burden is on, in this case, the United States to accept and welcome and uh, stabilize populations of Guatemalans coming into the U.S. in this instance. Okay, what about the case of someone... Being simply born into the wrong country, right? A country that is less fortunate economically for reasons that are not related to, you know, Western intervention, for right. example. Uh, what What is the duty of, of a rich Western nation in, in that context? Well, I mean, I think my personal opinion is that you point to any quote unquote wrong country and there's probably a history of meddling and intervention there. But to your point, I think this also expands our discussion to the notion of what type of immigration are we experiencing, right? Um, I think our case studies are pretty interesting. Both of our families came from highly educated uh, backgrounds. So there was obviously a greater, quotation mark, desire for the United States to welcome our families because they contribute to the economy, you know, from a STEM perspective, right? And there's clearly a separate... Uh, line of thinking that goes into play if you're not offering, you know, high tech skills or something like that. And it's an interesting conundrum. And actually, I think in this instance, the best approach is probably to take a um, European approach, right? Where there, there's kind of a tiered system. You, you might have to take into account the economic imperatives that you're dealing with. So we are going to welcome more high skilled workers and whatnot. But there is also a need for laborers. And I, I think especially in our country where certain industries, we simply can't fill workers fast enough. And if somebody from, with more of an, I don't want to call it unskilled background, but less of a fortunate, you know, high tech educational background does want to come to this country and they want to, to get a start here, I think we should welcome them in. But again, it depends on the socioeconomic realities, if that makes sense. What's your thought? No, I mean I'm I'm in full agreement with you there. I think I think that makes a lot of sense and and I think the point about how there's not really a country that is in need of or, or there there isn't a country out there that kind of has refugees that don't result from basically you know western intervention. I think that's an interesting idea. I think sometimes there are like disasters that occur that are not related. That's true. To that but Apart from that, you know, if, if it really is the case that most of the refugees are resulting from Western intervention, and it doesn't have to be necessarily Western, it could be other, other powers, right? It could be Chinese intervention somewhere, right? Um, although that's to a much smaller scale compared to what the West has done. Well, uh, I think a good example is what's happening in Ukraine right now. I, I think... And there's actually been a very interesting conversation developing over how refugees from Ukraine are described in the media versus refugees coming from Syria or Somalia, right? Where there is this very uncomfortable, almost racialized element to it. And there's like a compilation, I think, on John Oliver of media broadcasters saying shit like, oh, they're just like us. They're blonde haired and blue eyed. Like, um, but I mean, that is a situation which 
you know, there, there's a war happening immediately outside of the, the actions of the West and there are refugees pouring into Western Europe from that side of the world. I, I, I think there is not to hop onto a social justice bandwagon, but I think there's definitely a racist element at play too, where maybe our countries are more comfortable accepting refugees from certain backgrounds as opposed to others. Yeah. I mean, it's, it goes back to the tribalism and if someone looks like they could potentially belong in your group versus someone who doesn't, yeah, it's going to be a little bit easier to digest. You're naturally going to be more welcoming. Right. There's a great movie I saw a while back called Africa Paradis. And the whole premise is they essentially reverse the roles of Europe and Africa's continents. And they, the movie is almost like a documentary film from the perspective of European refugees trying to make it to Africa. There's like some sort of like conflict or like pandemic in, in Europe and Europe becomes like economically destitute in European uh, citizens of France, Germany, Italy, they're trying to cross over the Mediterranean boats to Africa. And it's this notion of if we were the migrants, which I guess you and I are migrants, so like, you know, we get a pass on this. But let's say if there's a massive destabilizing force in the United States and all of a sudden U.S. citizens have to go to Mexico or even to make it more interesting. What if U.S. citizens are now trying to move to Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates? Would we want to adhere to their social customs? Right. Let's say in 20 years, um, you're married with a family and you decide to immigrate to Saudi. And the Saudi Arabian government says, yes, we'll welcome you in, but your wife must cover herself. Um, she, I guess they can drive in Saudi Arabia now, so she can drive, I guess. But, you know, we'll, your children must go to religious schools, whatever the custom. I don't know enough about Saudi Arabian society, but would you be okay with adhering to... Would you be okay with assimilating to Saudi society as an immigrant to Saudi Arabia in this hypothetical situation? Well, it kind of depends on like what's the punishment for not assimilating, <laughs> and, and like you know what is their expectation? Like, is it sort of like you know if we're talking about like perfect assimilation? Like, I'm definitely not for you know a host country saying you have to be exactly like this. Like, it's okay to retain you know some cultural elements and and whatnot. But the the main point is if if there's a major conflict in terms of values, right? It like. It, if you immigrate to Sweden from Saudi Arabia and you say, you know what, yeah, women can't drive, uh, I'm not going to allow, you know, my daughter to drive. And then like, I don't know, it, to me, this is, uh, this, this is a question of like these major values, right? The tension between um, the enlightenment values of like Western culture and what they view as more archaic values of like, you know, religion. Well, archaic values in our interpretation. Right, right. From the standpoint of, of say, sweet Swedish people looking at this issue. I think like those are the, those are the major points of contention, right? It's not, it's, it's not like, hey, you know, you, you, you cook with too many spices, you know? Uh, we don't like flavor in Sweden. <laughs> you cook with too many damn spices. Like we don't like this cultural element. This is uh, immigrants suck because they use too many spices. Like no one said that, right? No. People love <laughs> the spices. <laughs> in fact, but but yeah. Um, where was I going with this? I, I, I think you have something to say against spices. No, I love spices. Man. Yeah, man, spices are great. Armenian spices, fantastic. Yeah. Um. 
Yeah. Anyway, I completely lost track uh, of where I was going with that. But to go back to this notion of ethics um, with regard to immigration, is there something wrong with people who want to maintain their own culture and they see immigration slash assimilation as sort of their culture being diluted and eventually evaporating. Uh, do, do you think that is a defensible point? Are you asking the question from a standpoint of an immigrant or a standpoint of a citizen of a country that is welcoming? A citizen of a host nation. So you're asking if, so if a citizen of a host nation is right to see assimilation as something negative or non-assimilation as something negative? Non-assimilation. Right. So, and, and this is, I mean, it's, it's a, there's an easy answer to this, which is, no, I guess there is no easy answer. Look at that. I think Europe, especially during the height of the war against the Islamic state had a lot of these conversations. And actually I, I was reading about um, two neighborhoods in Brussels that are infamous for being uh, zones of radicalization. Um, and they're, and they're essentially two enclaves that formed in, oh, what are the names? Molenbeek and Scharbeek in Brussels, where essentially entire communities of individual, of individuals from similar backgrounds would settle. So they wouldn't have much interaction with Belgian society. And they would kind of perpetuate a lot of the really conservative thinking that eventually brought about radicalization and joining the ranks of the Islamic state. So when the Brussels attacks happened, these two neighborhoods got a lot of focus because the perpetrators of the Brussels terror attacks were from these neighborhoods. They were, to your original point, second generation uh, immigrants, right? Their parents had immigrated over, but they lived in these communities, so they never had much interaction with Belgian society. They built maybe a level of trust or integration, so they were, they were susceptible towards uh, these elements of radicalization that they had to go through. I, I think that from that standpoint, a lack of assimilation does, to a certain extent, pose a threat to um, maybe the accepted norms of a country, particularly with, with some of the things that we have um, brought about through our own political and cultural evolutions in terms of equality for women, recognition of rights for LGBTQ plus communities, um, et cetera, et cetera. Although, it, to be fair, those things are quite new in our own societies, where as early as the 1990s, you still had the Clintons like talking about how gay marriage should be kept secret and whatnot. I think if we have certain values we recognize that are emblematic of our society, we want those values to be protected. And this is an important... Let me, let me ask you this, though. How, how could it evolve? How could your cultural values evolve if you always try to protect it? Does it doesn't that bleed into... A sort of that's a good point conservatism yeah, uh, yeah actually is, yeah you're so, right so it's kind of this right. conundrum of how do you get the best values from other cultures that are coming in right no without no. disrupting the most sacred values that your society was initially built upon and actually but then, yeah. but then it's the question of like well what if your society was built upon Shitty values. Shitty values. So, so it, right. it, it's 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 difficult to parse 
how it's difficult to parse what is ideal to assimilate, right? Right. Or from the standpoint of assimilation, like what a society should tolerate and shouldn't because it presume it presumes that they have the superior values, right? Like that's the underlying assumption. Um, how do you, how, how do we get beyond that? Right. Right. Do you, because also allowing anything to go, you know, in terms of like, Oh, let's, let's say Sweden, you know, allows, um, I don't know, uh, Sharia law to take, take over their kind of, uh, I don't know, their, their legal system. Right. Let's just say that happened. I mean, I, I'm not saying this is going to happen or anything. I'm not advocating for this. Uh, I don't think it's a realistic possibility. I'm just, I'm just saying, let's just say it happened. They were like, you know what? Yeah, they can, they can, they can have their opinion. Oh, they want to do a uh, Sharia law. Okay. Yeah. That seems interesting. Let's try it. Like that would completely upset their entire society in a very negative manner in my opinion um, well, it would make a different society it would make a different society and i think objectively it would it would make a worse society but i guess also if you look at it outside of like the immediate focus of our lifetimes aren't all societies just my gosh his space brain thinking isn't every civilization just an ebb and flow of movements of people and ideas religions and customs and is it just a natural course of events for... So back to your kind of hypothetical case study of Sweden, right? Let's say if you have a lot of people that move from a conservative country with Sharia law as its bedrock foundation, they move to Sweden and they still want to practice some of these customs. And let's say there's enough of them living in a certain district of Stockholm, they elect a politician that shares their views. Are they not themselves participating in Swedish society then, right? They integrated the political system, they have their own views, and they elected a politician that reflects their views. Would that not just be like a natural occurrence of how civilizations develop and, and, and evolve, so to speak? Yeah, it, it, it would. I mean, you're kind of now you're, you're going into like the notions of democracy and, you know, whether democracy is is even a good framework of political oh boy <laughs> of, of of governance right uh, I bring, mean bring back it, the comments. you know is it, what, what's that Churchill quote like it's 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 the it's it's bad but it's like better than um, that's not what he said I mean, it's, it's probably uh, yeah it's the best of like the worst that we have. everything's bad basically but it's the best out of the bunch. Um, Shit, I'm Churchill. Completely butchering that, but I think he probably stumbled around a couple of times. You know, he's drunk half the time, yeah. anyways. So. Um, but you're kind of like now you're getting to the question of like, well, if they use democracy to instill Sharia law, I mean, now you know you can say, well, this is this is evidence of not evidence, but this is like an argument against democracy, where you can instill. Uh, certain leaders or ideas that are actually counter to democracy, right? It becomes self-defeating in a sense. I mean, well, it's like the infinite like, catch 22 of a democratic process, but I mean, it doesn't have to be Sharia law. It could be, God, I fucking sound like Shapiro. Oh my God. <laughs> um, it doesn't have to be Sharia law. It could, it could be something as simple as 
somebody moves from a Catholic country, maybe they have certain views on abortion, right? And they will vote in line with a certain viewpoint. And if they make up, if that viewpoint makes up the majority of an electoral body, that's the policy that's going to be reflected. Right. So right. It, it is you, you're saying is it bad for them to participate in a democratic matter that? But uh, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying if they are, if an assimilated immigrant body that fully plays by the rules of a country in which they've moved to, but they still hold certain viewpoints as informed by their cultural practices, if they choose to reflect those cultural practices in their exercise of democracy, right. that, that's right. So what I was meant, what I, what I was trying to say before you cut me off, yeah, we're, is, get, we're getting conservative here. Yeah. If, if, if they naturally, if, if the assimilated people naturally using the democratic institutions elect or enact certain laws that are kind of from their culture, is that, is that like necessarily, like, isn't that just a normal kind of development of society, right. et cetera? What I'm saying is, though, if those certain policies or leaders are anti-democratic, which, mm-hmm. you know, you could make a case... Uh, that a religiously based um, leader or set of laws, I, I think you can make a case and that, again, it depends on the exact context of what this would be, but that these are anti-democratic, that they undermine democracy itself. Mm-hmm. From that standpoint, you don't want the simulated cultures to be able to do that, right? Because then you're saying we have no values. Then you're saying anything goes, so you need to maintain a semblance of a culture of a nation. I think you need some sort of, you need, you need a set of fixed values on some level. And if the ones, if, if you have values that are really bad, you hope, you hope over time, those are the ones that get weeded out, Right through this process maybe of, of assimilation, but to replace things that I think are intrinsically good, like unless you're doubting that democracy is good, right? Because if a culture comes in and says they don't want democracy and they use democracy itself to undermine democracy and instill a new form, new political system, then like what, which like at some point you have to, you know, there has to be like a fundamental axiom, right? Mm-hmm. Like a democracy base, is good. Right. Okay. So if the simulated culture is trying to undermine democracy, that's bad. At some point you can say, okay, no, 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 we can't have this. And I think that's the, that, that might be part of the issue that they're facing in Europe because there is a sort of culture clash and they don't know what to do with, with, with the tension that, that's arising as a result. They don't know what to say to this different culture, right? If, if it's an Islamic culture, they don't know what to say. They, like, they, they don't have the right philosophical framework to say, you know what? This is not good or this is okay, even though it might disrupt our democratic uh, uh, system or it might disrupt our kind of... Um, Enlightenment values, which we hold so dear, which have created, you know, this great Western empire, whatever. They don't, they don't have a philosophical framework to evaluate, like, 
what's coming in and whether like they should be okay with it or not. And mm -hmm. like, obviously like the people on the right in Europe are like, no, the people on the left are more accepting. Like, yeah, you know, let's, let's allow more of this. But at some point you, as we see in Sweden, it's a complete shift to like the predominant view is like, like, holy shit. Like, okay, we got, we, we need to really restrict immigration. We don't like where this is going. So that might be the result of too much immigration too quickly, right? Where they fail to assimilate, they fail to your good values or the values you think are maybe better than their cultures don't ever make it onto them and them not assimilating creates too much disruption, which causes this backlash against the immigrants, right? So it sounds like ultimately speaking, it's the responsible of the host country to enact policies to encourage assimilation. Yeah, I mean, I, that's probably, I think that's probably ideal from the host nation standpoint. Right. I mean, how do you, how would you argue against that, right? Right. If you don't do anything to defend the values upon which your society is built, then you can get overrun. And then you probably shouldn't be welcoming immigrants in anyways. And, and, and if you think that your values of like democracy and, and freedom and liberalism and, and stuff like that, like if, if you believe those are like inherently good, the, the, if, if you believe those aren't up for debate, then yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to make sure that those values are instilled into the, into the immigrants. And if they're not, then you have problems. Right. right. And I think it kind of goes both ways where if Swedish and I, I don't know that much about Swedish society, despite having lived there for a little bit as a child, because we were also immigrants in Sweden for a period of time. If Swedish society accept, accepts multiculturalism as an element of one of their core values, and it sounds like maybe a point of agreement we have here is that every country should have a baseline understanding of where they stand, kind of non-negotiable institutional elements to their civilization and then you can go from there right so if sweden accepts multiculturalism as one of those elements there's also an imperative to actively address far-right nationalistic let's call them neo-nazi viewpoints where that also isn't a reflection of our society right just like somebody coming in and wanting to undermine democratic processes through their own legal institutions or religious institutions we also don't accept Nazism as a representation of our society, right? That is also outside the balance of what it means to be, I guess, in this situation, hypothetically Swedish. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's an interesting point. Um, you know, being consistent in how you consistent. apply, right. How you apply the, the uh, subscription of, to your values. Right. Right. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know. It, 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 man, it's a tough question, you know, because it. Now you start getting into like, how would you do this, right? And like, it, does that involve censorship of free speech? <laughs> so it's it kind of cascades into this like insane problem. It's it's insanely complicated, which is why there's there's no easy solutions. I'll tell you that, right? No, like that we can definitely agree on. Uh, like this is an immensely complicated problem because we're still 
So we're still trying to understand human nature and how we work in groups. Like these are inherently some of the most difficult problems humanity has ever faced. And the truth is people in government, they don't have philosophical frameworks that are even remotely uh, powerful or coherent or logical enough to address these questions. And you need something really solid. You need a solid kind of set of beliefs and, and a framework to actually address these problems. I think the issue is, especially in our country, is that immigration is largely treated as something to kick the can down the road. No presidential administration wants to deal with the realities. Trump Trump wanted to. Well, and I think it's important to note that what Trump was doing. He built the wall, man. Well, he tried. Talk about... All, all Talk his, about elegant philosophical frameworks. Yeah, space <laughs> frame. Fucking wall. Yeah, we're going to build a wall. Yes. Um, but Trump also continued a lot of policies that just happened to exist under the Obama administration. The border detention, separation of families. That was not a Trump era policy. That's a policy that existed before Trump and still exists today. What'd you say about Obama? What'd you say about him? Um, I think my point is, is that at least in this country, if we truly wanted to address, and I don't think we're facing down like this existential crisis. I think that this is, and this is maybe a point where I want to introduce the concept of the United States and Europe having different experiences with immigration because I, in, in many ways, the United States, not to throw out a cliche, is in itself a country built up by immigrants. The, natives to the united states we've exterminated and um relegated to to reservations and, and things like well, that. well we didn't but yeah I well we, you and i <laughs> do not carry that guilt but the institutions that establish this country are guilty of that but there's also something to be said that the lands of, of north america of central america are indeed one landmass right? So just as we're stewards to the North American continent, individuals in Mexico and Central America are all also part of this landmass and collective civilization as well. Texas is not a European concept. You know, Hispanic culture has existed there since the colonial eras when, when, when Spain came in and messed up a bunch of Mayans and whatnot. Was it Mayans? It was Aztecs. Aztecs and Mexico mines in Central America. I got my history wrong. I need you to call me out on this stuff, man. Do you think I know him? <laughs> <laughs> Worst podcast host ever. My point being is that in you know, the arguments that, oh, Mexican immigrants crossing the border are going to dilute our culture somehow are foolish because they are our culture. You know, it is North American culture, North American civilization. Our collective historical experiences are very much the same. And I think the continued, even if it's mass migrations from Central and South America, it's just a continuation of a natural process that's building up North American civilization, so to speak. There are portions of our country that speak Spanish, and I think that's a natural occurring phenomenon. So you're for unrestrained uh, immigration? I'm not for unrestrained immigration. I, I, I think that we need to consider immigration as... I am a full proponent of creating a... European Union-esque arrangement with Mexico and Central America. 
given our shared history. Our shared history is why are, not just have a global society, man? Let's just all immigrate, assimilate, prosper. This podcast is brought to you by George Soros and the Soros Foundation. Well, I mean, let's talk about like um, some of the non like political benefits of immigration, right? The non political like, benefits so, of immigration. So you, we're talking about having a diverse culture yeah diverse range of people like even just appearances like mm-hmm. to me it's interesting to have people that look different yeah. i think i mean maybe um you know an evolutionary dead end to some extent <laughs> but I, I like that there's different people you know i, I like yeah. i like that there's there's different cultures different languages different foods um i'm not saying i like everything about all the different I, I, I'm not saying I like everything about every single culture and every single element within their cultures. Obviously not. But to me, variety is is a plus. Yes. And if it is the case that we are trending more towards a global society, if it is the case that a lot of the refugees and immigration migration crises have resulted from Western intervention then not only do we have an ethical obligation, like it is an, it is an inevitability that we will become a, a very diverse uh, worldwide kind of society, right? I mean, you look at the major cities throughout the world, mm-hmm. they're incredibly diverse. Mm-hmm. London, New York, I don't know, Hong Kong. Is Singapore. Fairly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, these are incredibly diverse right. places, and I mean, you would imagine it'll continue uh, that way. Um, I think one of the most enriching things about, for instance, going to school, public school in the United States, is that immediately in my class, I had people from Pakistan, from Bosnia, from Russia, from all over the world, and I think that enriches you as a human being in general because you're kind of exposed to customs and, and ways of life. And I remember in elementary school, we'd have this sort of, I guess like a cultural program where if you had a particular national holiday you celebrated, you were allowed to kind of take that day to make a presentation to the class about, Hey, this is what Russian new year is like, for instance, right? It's, it's different from what they do here. And it's, I, I think it makes life more interesting and life sucks, man. Life is tough. Especially as an adult. But this is so this is actually a great segue into the next question. Uh, because will immigration destroy national oh identity? Jesus. Will we turn into a monoculture? Will we lose that variety, right? Because by virtue, it, it, it's almost like immigration at some point, right? You, you, you would think like all these different, all, all this inclusivity, right? You become to, to, to mesh into like a single, like the world will eventually, you know, down the line, if, if you continue immigration between countries, it, it kind of basically will evolve into like a single culture, a global culture. And then you don't really have like what happens to the unique, you know, the unique customs at that point, right? Does it start to merge, especially with the advent of technology and how it seems to consolidate power and attention into like only a few things, right? What is that going to do? Are we going to have a a monoculture at some point? And maybe that's in a hundred. Maybe that's like in five hundred years. Maybe that's in a thousand years, assuming we don't wipe ourselves. I think out. 
I, 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 I think it's a valid point, but I don't think that monoculture is going to be an element of the home country's culture being erased and taken over by immigrant cultures. I think a great example of that is language, right? Where you and I, to a certain extent, still both speak the languages of our homelands where we were born. It's because our parents emphasized us learning it. We had some exposure and contact with people from our homelands beforehand. But the more our generations progress in the future, the less likely it is they're going to be able to speak the languages that we speak. They're probably going to be speaking English or, in your case, Arabic, because you'll be moving to Saudi, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> um, but I think eventually, as generations go, as time progresses, immigrant identity kind of warps into what is the identity of the host country they're in. Now, to your point, I think there is something about we're all experiencing this. You know, this comes down to a question of media consumption and how social media works. And we're all kind of talking in the same memes and we're watching the same TV shows. I think it's a separate conversation. I think largely speaking, if we talk about the quote unquote, and I don't agree with this, but the risks that immigration poses to national identity, I don't think it's as it's being framed by maybe the right wing of the debate. Well, I mean... I, I agree with you that uh, in the current moment and even in the near future, or perhaps even in the foreseeable future, it's mm -hmm. not an issue. I was speaking really, really like, you know, far ahead into the future, 500 to 1,000 years into the future, where you truly have, um, you have a lack of commitment to like, you have a lack of nationalism. You have a lack of national identity. You have a lack of culture. Like we see this, where I'm getting this from is is second, third, fourth generation immigrants here in the U.S. They 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 don't have their formal culture. No, right? Yeah. They have a new culture, I guess. Whatever the culture in the U.S. is, but it's not really like what do you make of the culture in the u.s like it's not to me it seems distinct from other cultures in the sense that it, since it's absent of like like is barbecue and guns is is that is that a culture i mean that's that's just one aspect of it but, but. that's also a great element of barbecue for instance it has its origins in the international slave trade and the cuts of meat that slave communities were given and how they're allowed to cook them but now it is in now it is kind of an element of american identity just like rock music or jazz music, all of that came from separate cultural groups practicing their experiences as they could, which eventually filtered into a greater national identity. I think that's kind of what happens where, yeah, you might not exist as a sort of a homogenous distinct entity, but maybe some of your practices, especially if it was happening in mass will be incorporated into like the monolith. And I mean, you're our specialist on tribal politics and tribal identity, right? historically speaking, you know, from the eras of gone, like we're no longer maybe to zoom out to your question. I think it's kind of an inevitable consequence of how civilization develops. We're no longer uh, practicing allegiance to single tribal group, right? It's not just our cave and a couple of our homies that like we live and exist in existence. We coexist in a greater ecosystem. And in a thousand years, that ecosystem is going to become increasingly more complex, but that's yeah, the, um, the lines are being blurred. And I think that's a natural historical civilizational development and once we do become a monolith then we'll take to the stars and then we'll have martians and, and all that kind of stuff and this is where we get to the rogan energy where we start talking about like dude like this Mar martian culture martian versus, culture yeah this is what earth earthian culture 
What is I, I mean, but we're not going to be around <laughs> for it, right? Yeah. But I think, it, yeah, I mean, how much of like Scythian culture do we practice? Or how much do we practice of like Babylonian culture? Like, no. But I'm sure there's certain elements of those civilizations that maybe we might kind of catch ghosts of in our day-to-day experience. You know, maybe like the written legal code is a consequence of Hammurabi and all the shit that he did. We don't know anything about their civilization. Maybe like thousands of years from now, they'd be like, oh, who are these motherfuckers with their like iPhones? Like, just watching web pornography all the time. You know, what were they up to? Yeah. This is kind of mute because, you know, we're just going to self-destruct anyway. I mean, maybe. Right? But that's, we don't have to deal with it. We get to live with all the benefits of stuff. We get to eat the spicy food, you know. Um, I, I, and I do think there's something like... That's why history is like so amazing because we can document the existence of entire civilizations over like centuries, right? That have nothing to say for, for, for the world today. They're gone, wiped out, you know, dust. But they're still there. They're still part of the greater narrative. How would you describe... American cultures, if you were a historian looking at it like 200 years into the future, right? Looking back at this moment, you're, 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 you're a historian from the year, you know, 2200. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a very complex thing to ask because it's you're looking at this specific period of time, like the, the early, uh, the early 2000s. Right. Oh, that's a good question. I think... I don't know. Social media. Social media. Media. I don't know. Guns. Uh, consumption. Um, you know, mass mass consumption. Consumerism is a huge element of, of our culture nowadays. I mean, it's just kind of a reality. Everything is based off consumption. Maybe economic models that we have. Loans. <laughs> Payday loans. Health insurance. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, you know... You'd be a terrible historian. You just... You you just say like random words. Yeah, you yeah. just string together random words. Right. That's but, your, I mean, here's here's a great example for you. Um, in the Midwest, there is the concept of burning fields. Right. Once a year, you light on fire. Like you light you light your your grasses on fire, and you let them burn down so that there's nutrients kind of getting into the soil, so new right. grasses can grow. That practice was passed down from some of the tribes that lived. In the geographical Midwest and the Great Plains. And the way the tribes started doing it is because they'd watch natural occurrences. If the grass is really tall, it gets struck by lightning in the summertime and then it'd burn off. And that practice has kind of continued from civilization to civilization. And now if you drive on 70 West through Colorado or, or you know, some of those states in the West, you see a lot of, you know, this time of year, smoke coming up off the prairie because they're burning the grasses. That's not a practice that somebody read about like Wikipedia or something. It's kind of an intrinsic understanding of, Hey, if you're going to be a steward to this land, this is what we do because it's been done for ages. That's kind of in a way, a link to, to whatever civilization we had in the past. And I think that's the best example of how, like maybe some motherfuckers 2000 years from now are also going to have to be dealing with student loans because, because we had to. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're destroying the, the, the benefits of cultural inheritance by, Offering shitty things to inherit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that, that's a deep statement. Yeah. That's a second t-shirt statement. Well, then the t-shirt business might make more money than this podcast. Mm. Well, 
That's the whole point. Unless unless Putin he uh he he, he could he could make us famous, man. He could make us famous. Infamous, really. If he includes us on his doesn't like Obama put out his like top three podcasts? Or something like that every year. He has a so reason. We, we're gonna end up on Putin's yeah. Putin's like, yeah, this is the best show ever. Like, we're done. Dead. Reputationally we, dead. We murdered him in that uh, in that episode on Ukraine. We did. Why would he? Maybe, why would he support us? The cuck fetish. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. So rest in peace, Andre. Rest in peace, Levon. May twenty ninth, twenty twenty two. So, final thoughts for you. We've talked about, I think, all sorts of topics and, and, and circumstances and issues related to immigration. But I'm curious to hear, if we have to distill your thinking on the matter, do you think immigration is ultimately a good thing? Do you think there's a way to have sustainable immigration and sustainable assimilation without causing hardship and difficulties to, to people seeking a better life in this country. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's no question that you can do immigration correctly and that it can be a good thing. It can offer uh, us just more interesting lives by virtue of having more interesting cultures. Mm-hmm. There's no question about that. Uh, I think we should do everything we can to make sure immigration goes, goes well mm-hmm. because in the cases that it doesn't, it provides too much ammo to people who are of the more in-group slash racist types. So I think, we, you know, we, we, we kind of have to think about it carefully. We have to do it right. We can't let our emotions, uh, our desire to like be nice and to just be inclusive for the sake of inclusivity to override kind of like hey, like we need to slow down. We need to do this right. Because if you get it wrong, you know, I mean, literally getting something like immigration wrong could end up getting fascists elected. That's a good point. So, so like you have to be careful. Um, Don't, don't let your, you know, emotions get in the way. Like, yeah, you want to help people, you want to help refugees. Of course, like this is a good this is inherently a good thing, especially when we're fucking up shit in other countries, right? Like we do have a responsibility. So like you know, it, I I think that's the good side, right? And and I'm on the good side, but the good side doesn't win by simply virtue signaling, right? You have to actually implement policies and implement your ideas in a way that that works and doesn't fragment society doesn't put additional strain on society well you know i mean there's i mean i i know we're trying to end the podcast here but i mean there's there's pros and cons right there's trade-offs that have to be made when you say fragment society you what if you have to fragment it for a little while before it you know, kind of re gels into like a single, uh, more properly assimilated society. What if, what if it has to be that way? Right? Like it's not obvious that it's one smooth path. So one smooth brain, smooth brain, smooth galaxy brain. Smooth, stuff smooth brain alliance. <laughs> <laughs> what are your final thoughts? I think I agree with you. 
I, I think that it's really easy for this issue to become, I, I think virtue signaling is like one of the most damaging things that we can do for any major policy point of discussion. I, I think that immigration is a very sensitive issue, but it's a necessary issue to channel resources and thought into. And I think there is a way to manage immigration in a sustainable manner that resolves in the best case circumstances for every party involved. I think it requires th thought. It requires discussion. And to be an effective stream of policy, it has to be realistic, both for the individuals seeking to live in another country, but also for the country that's welcoming them in. Ultimately speaking, I think we don't pay enough attention to it. I think that, I guess this is my red thread that I interject into every podcast, but I think that we spend far too much resources and thought on defense and not enough on issues like immigration and trying to understand it better and try to facilitate it better to make it more effective. You're saying the military budget <laughs> is too big. What is it? $860 billion now? Hot take. Hot take. <laughs> Hot take. <laughs> All right. Well, that's all she wrote. Who's writing? Is that your closing statement? Yeah. And that's the way the cook cookie cr crumbles. Zing!